Hello and welcome everyone to the No Pun Included podcast, episode number 19, the coziest board game podcast in the world. I am Cozy, but also my name is Evka, and with me I have Cozy, but your name is... Elaine. There you go, we are the coziest people. I'm not that cozy. Are you not? No. You have a <laughs> fleece on top of you, and you are surrounded by a jumper and a pillow. I've had a very cozy time playing board games lately because most of our board gaming has been playing one game, which is Sleeping Gods, which is a game we are not going to cover on this podcast episode today. But if you are not familiar with No Pun Included, you should know that primarily we're a YouTube review board game channel. Uh, and you can find most of our work there, uh, where we do awesome videos and some video essays. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the work we've done lately? Well, you did the colonialism video. I did. I talked about uh, Lithuanian history and also colonialism in board games, which uh, seem two subjects that are kind of disparate from each other, but tying them together was kind of the thesis, I think, of, of that video. And it's proved to be very popular. A whole bunch of people got in touch with me afterwards, either in the comments or even writing emails to me uh, or getting in touch via Twitter, saying that it resonated with them, saying that it made them think about their own uh, cultural history and how they view board games. And that uh, and this was the most flattering thing. A lot of people have got in touch to say that they've changed their mind how they view, view board games, oh, which to me nice. has been uh, really warm and really validating. In a, that is cozy. Right? That is mm -hmm. incredibly cozy because when you do something uh, like that, that's very personal and uh, you pour yourself, a lot of yourself into it, uh, having that sort of feedback is really, really nice. So uh, if you haven't seen our colonialism video yet, which you might not have because YouTube decided to bury it, uh, then do go on their YouTube channel and check it out. I think it's definitely worth a watch. We also did a video review lately. Mm, of Micro Macro, which is a Wes Wally type of game. Is it Wes Wally? Well, in the grand scheme of things, that is probably... If no one has heard of Micro Macro, then that is probably the thing, the real world thing that you can compare it to the best, as opposed to something like trains or farming or... I don't know, space or whatever, right? It's, mm. That's kind of how it feels a little bit because you're searching a giant map, an enormous map for various things uh, to solve a crime. That's one of the things that sort of put me off Micro Macro when I heard about it, when the comparisons to Where's Wally mm -hmm. uh, started coming about. I really don't like Where's Wally. In the video, there's a line <laughs> where you say that you... I don't like Where's Wally. Yeah, that's actually not true. I I simply wrote that script and that line fell to Elaine. Um, yeah. No, I loved Where's Wally as a kid. Like, I'd still play it now, honestly. But for me, it was something that I just couldn't get engaged with. I don't have any nostalgia for Where's Wally. Right. It, it, it hasn't been part of my cultural up upbringing. And I just found it tedious. I just found it busy work. And I think that's why I wasn't at all into the idea of Micro Macro. But then I discovered that, ooh, there's actually a lot of interesting th things happening in this game. And I had a heck of a time solving crimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you haven't heard of Micro Macro, I do recommend you check out our video because once again, uh, that video uh, isn't doing as hot as our other videos. And that's because people 
don't necessarily always want to watch something that isn't the hype of board mm. games. Uh, but if you haven't heard of Micro Macro and you're like, I like solving cases, you should check that video out because you might find a game that's very, If you very enjoy a kind of chilled out searching for things, it's not like a Sherlock Holmes consulting detective or something where you have to read and, and look at every little detail and come up with where this thing might be or who this person is or go from one to the other to the other to the other. It's just a very straightforward, relaxed, here's a thing, find it. Yeah, and it works so nicely because because there's no sense of like that gamey logic. It's just like right. you're solving a case. Right. But what it does do is has those oh oh my goodness look at the thing the thing is there right it's really exciting like you you, you can feel like the, the <laughs> i'm gonna say something very pretentious the vibrations of excitement at the table yeah uh and uh and that feels nice you know it's a shared moment i mean the vibrations for me at the table mostly come from having to play with bess's toy underneath the table while we're playing the game oh because we sh there's there's a bit of b-roll <laughs> yeah. in the video where we shot ourselves playing a case and you start wiggling your arm under the table <laughs> in a peculiar manner it's just because the dog is under the table and you are playing with the dog uh -huh. to keep the dog entertained whilst we're playing a game something that happens very frequently in our house mm -hmm. we've spoken about the games that we're not going to be talking about in the podcast today how about we talk about the games we are going to be talking about Today, we'll be talking about Carpe Diem, mm -hmm. Cryo, mm -hmm. and Iberian Gage, which are free games that bear no relation to each other, apart from the fact that we played them and we want to talk about them. Well, no, there's, there's the fact that Cryo is in the future, uh -huh. Carpe Diem is in the past, because it's like Romans and Yeah, not and Iberian like Gage is also in the past. Yeah, but not so much the past. Right, like recent modern past. times. Modern times, okay. And does this, this time when the trains were built count as modern yeah. times? I don't know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like the age like of the age of technology. Yeah, but we don't. Right? No, it's the industrial era. We don't live in the industrial right, era okay. anymore. I'm just trying to make a link. All right. Okay. Well, it's a <laughs> naff link. <laughs> Let's talk about Carpe Diem. Elaine, I have Carpe Diem right under my armpit and I am excited uh, to talk about it. That's a treat for if we if we ever give that in a raffle or something. <laughs> it's been under Efka's armpit. Well, you know, it's only because I have a stack of games right next to this me. And it, and it feels comfortable to just rest my arm on top of them. And you, Carpe Diem is on the very top of that stack of games. You didn't like the name Carpe Diem. No, I think you it's a, it a nonsense name. name. Yeah, it's an absolute nonsense name. First of all... Carpe diem, what? Seize the day. What, what has it got to do with anything that is happening in this game about farming? Well, you're seizing the day of farming. Oh, come on, cluck, cluck, chicken, seize the day. What? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. You could have a chicken Caesar salad. That's chicken and Romans. Right, but just because, like, carpe diem is a Roman phrase. Is it even a Roman? Yeah. I guess, I'm guessing it is a Roman phrase, right? I okay. don't know who said that yeah. initially. Yeah. Uh, but, but why does why does it matter? You could have put it in like you know in vino veritas as the name of your board game or whatever. Well, there's no right? wine in the game, is no, there? No, sure, but there's like okay. Also, I think it gives the wrong impression of this game. Ironically, there are fish in the game, and if you read Carpe Diem as seize the carp, 
then then that's a nonsense. Well, of course it is. Just like the title of this board game. Well, no, but like, so farmers have to seize the day, don't they? Right. Because I mean. Sure, they, yeah. They have to get up when it's really early. They have to start ploughing their fields, although you don't plough fields yeah. in this game. But you do build stuff in this game. That doesn't sound like seizing the day. That sounds like conforming to your background. Okay, well, conforming to our background in board games, how about you tell us how to play? See what I did there? I, I It's very good. Yeah, I, I have Thank to you. give you kudos there, Elaine. Seize the day is the new board game from Steppenfeld. Actually, I shouldn't say new because this is already a second edition mm -hmm. of Carpe Diem, although the first edition only came out like last year or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but Maybe it's been two updated and improved slightly. Yes, and we'll get to that. We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, so if you're not familiar with Mr. Feld's work, then Mr. Feld does uh, what are known as point salads, which are non-confrontational puzzles where you do various efficiency things and you get points from them. And there are many multiple different paths mm. to victory. Carpe Diem is not a complicated game. Uh, and also, it is a very immediately, like, I think the, the thing that struck me about Carpe Diem is how I totally, like, got on board with what's going on. So first of all, uh, it's a tile lane game where you have various tiles that you'll put on your board and based on their configuration, you'll score points either at the end of the game or during the game. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to sort of build your city i think is it a city yeah it's sort of like a... yeah like a little town you're trying to be the best builder of the town mm, but it's mostly like farming buildings yeah there's there's a lot of farming mm. uh, in it but there's also kind of other types of buildings like warehouses and things like that yeah that's still farming well i guess because yeah. that's where you store the stuff yeah, you farmed i guess and there's like a well or a fountain yeah. or whatever yeah pond Pond, yeah, it's it's mostly farming things that mm. you're building. And the trick with these tiles is that each tile has like half of a building or most of them. Or most or or sometimes they have like a building, but it's not complete, right? right? So when you're putting things down on your board, you're trying to complete these buildings. And when you complete them, you will get a resource. So for mm. example, if you built like a chicken pen mm -hmm. uh, out of multiple conjoining tiles you finally make a chicken pen you'll get a number of resources that is equal to x minus one yes uh where x is the number of tiles yes, that is correct that compose this building i don't know if that applies to chickens though but yeah that's the that's the basic principle there's mm. there's loads of different buildings in the game but there are three types of kind of tile so there's the single tiles like the market where you just take one tile you place it down and you get the thing there's uh, the second type of tile is like you were saying the two-parter so you mm -hmm. build half the building and then you have to try and get the other part of the building and then you get the thing whatever it is and then the third type is where again like you were saying there's multiple tiles that all can join and in theory you could have quite a big building with an amount of tiles mm. so like the pond is kind of infinite in theory uh, just based on the number of tiles that you take of that type what I really enjoyed about this game is is the way you take tiles because there's sort of like two faces to this puzzle. So the reason you want resources because uh, there are four rounds in the game at the end of every round. Uh, if you have the right combination of resources and there's a particular scoring condition that hasn't been scored yet, mm -hmm. you can score that 
scoring condition mm -hmm. by spending those resources. So you want things to get points, basically. Uh, and so you place tiles to get things. But the thing about these tiles is that, uh, first of all, because most tiles have two buildings on them, mm -hmm. just on, let's say, opposing signs, mm -hmm. right? You're always, by completing, let's say, one building, you are starting another building. Yes. But you might not want that building there. Right. Because on the edges of your player board, you have, like, these pointer arrows that say, at the end of the game, you'll score extra points if this arrow cuts through, like, a particular type of building. So And it has to be the right orientation as yeah. well. Yeah. And you're always like, ah, okay, so if I put this tile here, like, I get to complete a thing, but ah, that gets in the way of this other uh -huh. thing. And and it feels like the game constantly makes you feel at odds with the things that you're trying to achieve and the new things that you're starting, mm. right? So uh, that's interesting and neat because the puzzle is at its core quite simple, but it always gives you obstacles. So you always feel you always feel like you're trying to solve something. And that's a really nice feeling. But the second thing that I really like is the the way you get these tiles, which is where quite a bit of confrontation happens, especially in the two-player game. Yeah. yeah. So strangely, a lot of board games you have like adjustments for two players to account for the fact that, you know, the uh, the interaction between players isn't quite as present. And right? also there'd be too much choice sometimes if, if too many tiles were left over. Yeah. Right? So what the game does here is actually uh, the two-player variant, I feel like is the more interesting way to play Maybe. because it makes tiles disappear. And that's such a devastating right. feeling because when you start playing each round, you're like, oh, okay, there's that tile that I want there, another tile that I want over there, that one's over there. And you're like, okay, if I plan this out really well, I'll be able to grab that one, that one, that one. But because any player can make tiles disappear, <laughs> you're suddenly realizing that the plan that you had in your head might not quite come to fruition. Right. You've made it sound a little bit more confrontational than it necessarily is though right like you can't you don't have to right the the tiles disappear because so there are four tiles in any one mm -hmm. section i can't remember how many sections there are eight or seven or eight seven, or something, something like, like that, like yeah. that. Um, and in a two-player game as soon as there are only two tiles remaining on any section they are removed so if you want a tile and there's only three of them on there if you take that off, then the other two will go. So you have to be really careful about which tiles you take or which tiles you know that your opponent is going to take. Well, that's the thing that I actually really like. It's not so much about the confrontation of it or like mm. denying tiles to your opponent. It, it makes me pay attention to what you're doing mm -hmm. because I'm like, okay, Elaine probably wants that tile. Mm. So if I take this tile then Elaine will have to go over there to get that tile. But that will make my tiles disappear. And I don't want to do that. So how do I encourage Elaine to go somewhere else? <laughs> and smart, yeah. Right? So sometimes the game even can feel cooperative where you're like, okay, I really need these t this tile. And I know Elaine needs this tile. So maybe I can convince her by just saying, look, if you go there and I go there, we each get what we want and that's fine. Um, I spent a lot of the game trying to work out which tiles I needed I I honestly maybe it's because I'm not a super confrontational player but it's because I 
didn't really care about what you wanted mm -hmm. as much as taking the thing that I wanted. So I wasn't looking at it going, ah, if I take this tile, then those tiles will disappear for Efka. And I mm -hmm. know that he needs those. Right. And in fact, like when we were playing it a couple of times, we, we did kind of go, oh, well, all right, I won't take that one then if you really want that one, the yeah. other one that's there. I'll take this one instead. Right. What I like about games like this is that they're going to play differently based on Who any you play given with, right? table. Yeah, yeah right? for like, sure, for sure. Uh, the culture of the table decides how the game is being played. And I like that it has that flexibility to accommodate that. What you effectively have is you have seven or eight spaces. Again, I can't remember how many. Uh, and each space has four tiles. And you have a person piece that you will move from space to space. And you can only move one space each unless you spend resources. Uh, and you can move left or right. And that's one of the things that I believe was simplified between editions. Because in, in a humorous story, they had a more complicated system how you move between tiles and then after the game was published, someone said to Stefan Feld, wait, isn't it like the result of this that you just either move left or right? And Stefan Feld said, yes, yes, it is. It's like they simplified the Rube Goldberg machine, right? Yeah, right. Because it is effectively just that. So yeah. uh, that's funny how sometimes rules can be <laughs> like so much more complicated than what they need to be. Uh, but well, yeah, you yeah. basically move left or right, you pick up a tile, and there, there you go, you have it. So you constantly have to like plan out this path, because mm -hmm. the resources that allow you to move further are mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. quite costly, and you mm -hmm. don't want to spend them, because you could use them to get points. So yeah, it's nice, it's simple. Here's the thing that sort of, I don't want to say bothered me, but okay. felt a little bit odd for me with Carpe Diem. So it's a game I very much enjoyed. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking forward to going back to it. It feels different from yeah. other Steppenfeld tile lane games, which are Castles of Burgundy and Castles of Tuscany. and Which we liked both of. Which we liked both of. I like Castles of Burgundy a lot, and I like Castles of Tuscany a lot, just for very, very different reasons. Uh, this feels slightly different, but is also not overbearing with rules like some of uh, Steppenfeld's other titles can be, like Bonfire or mm. Aquasphere, which are just very hard to penetrate. But what I don't necessarily gel with is the round structure. So there's four rounds in the game, right? Yeah. And the first three rounds feel like the first three acts of a book or, sure. or a movie or whatever. You, you have the, like, I'm just starting to build my thing. All complications arise and, oh, no, everything's on fire, mm. right? And that would be fine if it ended there. But mm. then Carpe Diem goes on for a fourth round. And it very much feels like, like a bad Stephen King book where... Like, Ooh. there's just no, like, sense of, like, how to end it because <laughs> he wrote so many weird things uh, because he did in the 80s. And then there's all sorts of weird Deus Ex Machina kind of nonsense going on. Um, so so what happens in Carpe Diem is because so many of the tiles are open-ended. To give it finality, there's the fourth round where you only get tiles that are endings, right? Yeah. So whenever you put on a tile, that's it. It completes the building. There's no other building that it starts. Or, or you know, like a good analogy is, is the last half of the uh, Return of the King, which is the you know sure. Lord of the Rings book, where they just spend half the book going and here's what happened next. Uh -huh. and, and so that's what the fourth round of Carpe Diem felt like to me. Like, I felt like all the tension of the game sort of deflated as we just went, well, okay, let's finish the things we started. Yeah, I understand what you mean, and but I f did feel that there was a little bit of that 
throughout the game. Like, I, I enjoyed the game very much, mm-hmm. but I struggled a little bit with the flow of it, especially compared to some of his, his other games that, that we've played, uh, because there is this very definitive, like you said, there are the four rounds, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the end of rounds one, two, and three, you do scoring, right? Mm-hmm. And that felt very kind of a very big stop. Like you're playing the game, playing the game, getting the tiles, and then whoop, you're in the scoring. And then playing the game, playing the game, so whoop, you're in the scoring. Mm. And it, it just felt kind of jarring to have the way that you score. So the way that you score is mm. that there are a number of kind of randomized cards that have scoring conditions on them that are kind of either um, you need to pay resources or you need to have a certain amount of resources. And you put one of your little discs in between two of the cards and then you can score for one or both, hopefully both, because if you can't score for a card, you get minus points, right? Mm-hmm. And and then you leave your pip there and that can't be scored for the rest of the game. So because it is like a point salad, you get to choose what you want to score for and when, effectively. Mm-hmm. But I just found that very kind of t- taking me out of the my building my farm. Right, yeah. During the tile laying, it's all about am I getting the right resources? And you're, you are looking at the scoring, like where yeah. am I going to go? And then if someone else goes to the spot that you wanted to go to, mm. then you're kind of like, oh, what do I do now? Because I've got all these resources that I can't use and I'm scoring minus points. Well, yeah. So if there there's no way to utilize those resources on a different mm. scoring condition, that's really, really frustrating. Mm. And, and I guess that's where Turner order becomes really important. I, I can see what you mean. I don't so much dislike that. I think it's just, you know, adding tension to the game. Mm. And, you know, it is, after all, as you pointed out, called Seize the Day. And this isn't just chill <laughs> right? farming. This right. is about, you know, getting out there and... Being the best. Staking your farming flag in uh-huh. the land and uh-huh. going, I I am the farmer. And it, it's it's a tense game. Yeah. I, at no point did I felt did I feel like... Oh, you know, I'll just lay a tile and it'll be chill and nice. No, this is like, you know, cutthroat chickens. You know, like like the headless chicken that lived for years and years after he had no head. Mike. Mike, Mike the he- headless chicken, chicken yeah. yeah. Um, don't get me wrong, right? I really liked the scoring, mm-hmm. right? But it just felt... Because I thought it was really clever how you got to choose what you were going to score and when, right? Mm-hmm. But it just felt very definitive at the end of each round. Yeah. That yeah. I didn't feel like it flowed from one, like from the game to the scoring to the tile length to the scoring. It just kind of stopped. Yeah, there's a punctuation mark. And again, like I say, it feels like the game wants to say there's three acts. Yeah. But oh, then a fourth one as well. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's a purposeful decision and it's mm. just something that didn't quite, work for me but it doesn't take it didn't take away from my enjoyment of the game is that carpe diem is that everything we have to say about carpe seize diem? the chicken seize the chicken seize the carp elaine why don't you tell us about cry o why did you say it like that well you know because cry o me a river oh ew. <laughs> eh. <laughs> eh. That's that's bad even for you. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? It's a song so popular that 20 years later, Justin Timberlake had to apologize for it. 
What? Why? Well, because he wrote it about like breaking up with Britney Spears, like you know, whatever, cry me a river, right? He, and he, no, he, what? He wrote cry me a river? No, he didn't. Cry me a river? No. No, the Justin what, what Timberlake. Talk- song. I don't know what we're talking about. The Justin Timberlake. Why song. were we talking about that instead of the I don't know Ella Fitzgerald song? That's a much better song. I know. Well, I don't even know this one that you're talking about. You don't know "Cry Me no. a River" by Justin Timberlake. No. I don't. Anyway, this is nothing to do with cryo. Oh, I don't want to talk about this game anymore. You do, because you like space. And this game is about space. space. Uh, And it is about crash landing on a lovely temperate planet during the day. However, at night it's freezing. So the only way that you can survive is by digging a hole and living underground at night. I like how definitively the setting was described in in the rule book or mm-hmm. wherever, where it's like, no, you're gonna die. Yeah. If, if night comes, you're dead. Right. Sunset, That's it. Right? Boom. Yeah, because it's that cold. And and so what I feel really bad about is covering this game on the podcast because the visuals of Cryo are out of this world. Uh-huh. Hey. <laughs> See, that was a good one. Thank you. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. Um. Every little bit, from the card art, to the player boards, to the board board, uh-huh. to the little plasticky pieces of of these drones that are your, like, worker pieces, mm-hmm. effectively, or these little cryopods that stores your population. Everything is... I want to say, per- can I use the word perfect? I think you can. Yeah. I, I, I mean, aside from the use of plastic, which I'm not a very big fan no, of, right? Sure. But like, but if we're talking about the colors, yeah, oh yeah, the artwork like, used, yeah. Oh, I love it. It's so nicely produced and so evocative, and like that cover, you know, it says everything it needs to say. It's just like this spaceship barreling down, and it's on fire, and you have the coldness of space, and and it, the planet is very obviously frozen over you mm-hmm. know like it sets everything just mm. right there's so many le- elements of this production that i could go on and on and on about that i absolutely love what i like about the art particularly is that even though it's kind of set in the future the art is reminiscent of maybe like 90s like vibrant colors kind of almost like the memphis pattern like the oranges and greens and blues and things like that going together it's kind of like um you know you know in a clockwork orange that's set in the future mm-hmm. but everything is kind of really 70s yeah yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It, that's how it makes me feel like those those colors blending together it's just perfect i agree with you well the art influences list mobius which is the uh-huh. comic book artist uh-huh. from the 80s and i very much feel that there, there are a lot of these sort of psychedelic colors mm. and geometry that feels just ever so slightly off because mm-hmm. it's like wobbly and wavy. <laughs> uh-huh, and uh-huh. Uh, Yeah, everything has this very purposeful and fitting aesthetic look. However, that is, I think, the only thing I liked about Cryo. And I sadly didn't enjoy anything else. The the issue I think that we both had with Cryo was that it it's a fine game, right? It's it, it's there's nothing wrong with it. It's a perfectly cromulent 
game, right? It works. Yeah. You can play it. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's just a little bit boring because the things that you do in it don't have anything interesting. So the part of it, quite a big part of it, is majority scoring. But that's all it is. There's nothing extra for, for getting to that part of the underground of the planet first. There's, there's no bonuses. There's no anything. It just is majority at the end of the game. Well, that, this is the thing, right? So that really, really got me. And I, I think I want to explain Cryo a little bit more mm. and sort of the scope yeah, of the of course, game. Yeah. Uh, so what Cryo is, is a worker placement game where you will place your workers and collect resources. Uh, is there some innovation there? Yes. So uh, where you place your worker matters because you will be adjacent to a number of action spaces. Those action spaces will let you outright collect a resource or maybe convert mm -hmm, another resource mm -hmm. to a different resource. And, and then you will use those resources to launch your pods underground, <laughs> yeah. right? And underground are these sort of like cavernous circular spaces uh, and the person in each space at the end of the game who has more cryopods will score more points than the person who has less cryopods yes. effectively. That's all it boils down to. And I don't want to mislead people by saying there is no innovation in cryo. And I also don't think that all you need in games is like constant innovation no, and something sure. new and something different. If something different. works, then Yeah, if something great. works, then it's fine. And to an extent, some of the parts of Cryo are things we've seen before combined competently. But again, I think you touched on a very important point. It's not that, that Cryo is an incompetent game. Mm. It's just that that competency doesn't produce anything interesting. Mm. Um, and so one of the really neat things of Cryo is that you basically have free workers and then once you deploy those workers, you need to recall your workers sure. back. Yeah. And we've seen that mechanism before. Like, you know, you, you free up spots for other players mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. they can now go into those spots and mm -hmm. you need to take a sort of a reset action and you need to figure out how to time it because you only have free workers, but maybe you really need this worker to go somewhere again uh -huh. uh, or maybe you need to trigger the reset action because it does other things and this is the innovative part sure. so on your player board when you collect these resources you collect them on on little tiles sometimes and you can choose to just spend the tile once you collect it to get the resources or you can slot it into your player yes. board and then when your drone ships return to your player board you have sort of various action spaces on your player board and some of these action spaces you can build yourself hmm. by slotting in these little cardboard tiles. For example, you could have a cardboard tile that says, I have this pink resource. And then uh, I can convert this pink resource into like more green resources or whatever. Yeah, right? so you effectively can choose what you're paying and what mm. you're getting. Yes. And that I found very, very exciting. However, even that part of the game didn't quite live up to my expectations mm. because what ended up happening is that most of the time I realized I was either just doing the one thing mm. or not being particularly excited about the other things. And I thought to myself, why? And, it, and then I realized that even though you're allowed to build some of these spaces, mm. they are sort of half pre-printed and some of these you can't really modify. So the flexibility didn't feel as interesting as right. i wanted it to be right 
And I think that's a very important point where you said like you're either doing one thing or you're doing something less effective, right? Mm. And I think that also applied to another part of the game, which was the cards. So uh, you you can draw you draw cards as, as part of your hand, and then they operate in several different ways. So mm-hmm. you can either just spend them to get whatever resources printed on the card. You can use them as a vehicle, uh, which carries around your pods, and then you can launch it underground. Right, and then you launch it underground. Uh, you can also use them for their endgame scoring ability. And lastly, you can use them for their in-game ability, so they'll do something during the game. That's four modes. That was really exciting, because it was like, how do I manage where I put these cards and how I use them? Do I want the resource? But, ah, then I can't use it as the vehicle, or do I use it as the vehicle? Oh, but then I really want the end-of-game scoring that, that comes with it. How do I... That was so cool. I really liked that. But it fell a little bit flat in practice. Yeah, so the reason why those cards didn't quite work for me, and I think you agree with me on mm. this, is that nothing they did and this seems to be like a recurring theme in our review of this game nothing they did felt particularly interesting and when they did do something interesting it felt slightly too interesting in that Mm. it made the other cards pale in comparison yeah so you early on and i felt so sorry for you you picked i backed myself into a corner yeah you picked up a card uh, and then you played it for its ability, for in-game, for its in-game ability, uh-huh. that said... Uh, You're allowed to use the actions on the spaces that are supposed to be blocked off. Yes, because uh, it's like most games, they are just... Uh, Cryo is adjusted for player count, so mm-hmm. uh, there would be too many spaces, the game would feel too loose, uh, where you could put your drones, so some of the spaces are restricted. Yeah. Uh, and they're restricted in all player counts. Mm-hmm. It's just that... In a two-player game, a lot more spaces are restricted. So you picked up a card, uh, played a card with an ability that I said... I thought that was going to be really useful because, like, in most games, you want to have the most different options available to you as possible. Right. It turned out, no, it wasn't. Yeah, so it said you can, you can land on those spaces yeah. that are blocked off, right? And that just, like, there wasn't ever that tension in the game where it felt like, oh, I really need to be on this space... So that card barely did anything. But what to me immediately became very revealing is mm. that I thought, wait a minute, well, what, what happens to this card in a four-player game where there's barely any spaces that are blocked off? Are mm. they really that important? Are they really that relevant? Playing that card might feel like it does nothing. And then I played a card that felt like it did everything where you can <laughs> convert like one energy into an extra action every uh-huh. single turn uh-huh. and sure energy is the hardest resource to get yes but you frequently can get more out of a turn than just one energy and you can engineer it so that you're getting more energy every time you reset because like you said you know you, you can, can build your own build, spaces right. right yeah so if, as long as you can ensure like a steady supply of energy you can just take extra actions <laughs> all the time like, so literally I... <laughs> have twice as many right. actions as other right. players. Right. Right? Which is what you were doing until I drew that card too. <laughs> yeah. I went, oh, I'm playing this. And I'm not saying... I'm not I'm not talking about balance here. It's, it's, it's just like one card feels so much more interesting than others. Mm. And that, to me, feel, feels off, right? And 
I guess that's sort of like the tenor of Cryo. You mm. feel like, oh, okay, there's there's something really cool happening here. But when you actually get to grips with it, it deflates, you know? Mm. And and you started talking about the area majority of scoring. And that, to me, was the most disappointing thing. Right. Because this game is designed by Tom Jolly and Luke Laurie. Tom Jolly is the designer of the very vastly underrated Battle for <laughs> Rokugan, uh, which is mostly an area majority game, uh, but one that I really, really like. And that game understands how to make area majority interesting, and how the dynamics of, you know, sacrificing being in one space are, like, relevant to being in other spaces. And, and and the interplay between that. Here, area majority is just like, well, I'm in this space at the end of the game. I'll score some points. And that, that to me, is the oldest trick in the book. And I'm, I'm, okay, I'm not saying that area majority is bad. There are a lot of games that do area majority in a very interesting way. We just covered Iwari at the end of last year on our YouTube mm-hmm. channel. Mm-hmm. Fantastic game. And on this podcast, mm-hmm. you can go back and listen to our episode. That game, all is all it is, is area majority, but it's so interesting. Mm. I know you disagree with me no, on no, this. No, 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 it's fine. I, again, like, yeah. I think that's a really good game. It's just not one that I enjoy particularly. Yeah, but here area majority is, is just disappointing because it's like the final note but it goes flat. Yeah, I I completely agree with with everything you said. Really, like it's just it felt like it had so much potential when you were so you read the rules and you mm. were telling me how to play it, and everything seemed like ooh ooh that sounds good that sounds good especially the cards the different ways you could use them yeah um and then just playing it fell a little bit flat yeah that's cryo and sadly it didn't work for us but again perfectly capable game (laughs) perfectly capable game just not a very interesting one beautiful art though that leaves one game to talk about just the one game and that game is called iberian gauge the third game in the iron rail series Uh started off with irish gauge uh then ride the rails don't really know who designed that. And and now back to Iberian Gage, which is the third in the series. What a game, huh? How do you feel it compares to the other two? If if people have got uh, Irish Gage and Ride the Rails, how do you feel it compares? Well, it definitely feels like the next game in the series. Mm-hmm. Where, first of all, uh, Irish Gage is a game we have reviewed and we have loved. Uh-huh. Uh, Ride the Rails is a game... That we was, have not reviewed. Well, we slightly covered it on the podcast by saying how much we didn't enjoy the the behind the scenes stuff around <laughs> Ride the Rails, but also the game itself didn't really quite sing for us. But it did feel marginally different mm-hmm. from Irish Gage, and this also feels very different. So to give it a little bit of substance, uh, all these games are part of a genre of games called mm-hmm. Cube Rails, which are games you build trains with train companies kind of setting. But unlike the very complicated cousin that is the 18xx games, Mm. which if you want to know more about, we've also once again done a video, this is very much lighter. And uh, the rules for these games are not as cumbersome or as as convoluted. Right, they're always printed on two sides of A4. Yes. That's kind of the thing. That's definitely the thing. And they always center around laying... They're called cube rails because normally in, in the older editions of these games you would have just you know cubes representing trains that you put on hexagons on the map mm-hmm. and they form like a train line here the fancier iron rail series have replaced the trains 
With trains. With trains. <laughs> so they're no longer cubes. They're like actual little train pieces. But but that is the essence of it. You, you, you are stimulating in each game something. Yeah. Right? And in this game, I think what you're simulating is the sense of cooperative ownership mm. and how it's a disaster. <laughs> uh, and that to me i think says everything you need to know about the game because if you wanted to be reductive of iberian gauge you could say something like well you know if you're curious about 18xx games and you played irish gauge this could be like the, the middle gateway. step in be yeah, <laughs> yeah. like uh, but if if you need a sort of a like a primer on ideas mm. that puts you closer towards understanding these really complex 18xx games iberian gauge could fulfill that role because unlike the previous games in the series it introduces a lot of concepts that are present in the 18xx mm, games sure. so first of all you have personal money and then you have company money yes. so uh when you buy enough shares of a train company uh you become like part owner mm. in that company uh and you're managing that company's budget by spending it on laying track yeah uh but also you have your own personal money that hopefully you make more of right. by operating these train companies and the person with the most personal money is going to win. And it, you can also set the initial share value, which is, again, something that's present in 18xx right. games. Uh, it's called the IPO, you know? So, right. like, whenever whenever you start a company, which means buying the very first share in it... You, you set how much that share is worth, each share is worth in yeah, that company. Yeah, so, and immediately it presents, like, interesting decisions in this game. So each player starts with 40 personal money. Uh, when you set a share price, you can set it anywhere between 12 and, I believe, 40 or 30. It's, it's no. quite high. Yeah, yeah it's, I think it's 30. Uh, so if you set a share price of 30 on something, that means you can't buy another share at all at the start right. of the game. Because you're left with 10 and the cheapest a share can be at the start of the game is 12. So there's some tricky things you're trying to handle right. because if you do set it at 12, you could potentially buy another share of something that's also 12. You've only tw spent 24. That leaves you with 16. You could, right. you know, buy another share that's worth 16. So that's three shares instead of one. That's a lot more shares, which means hopefully a lot more revenue later down right. the line. But... Does that make for an attractive, popular company? You know, maybe people who invest together with you into this ridiculous $30 mm. share company, you know, mm. maybe they'll reap a lot of benefits. So there's, right. there's a lot of tricky decisions and, to be and made. And the way that this does differ with the shares in the 18xx is that you can't sell them back. Yes. So you can never get rid of a share. Once you've got a share, that's it. You're in that company. You're part owner of that company. Uh, and second of all, each company has an amount of shares that are available and the shares that aren't bought will make the money go back into the company. But the shares that are bought, that money will go to the people that have those shares. Yes. Right. So so there's a choice between how much money is going back into the company, kind of, because it's not just up to you. It's up to everyone else at the table, whether they invest in that company, too. Um, because at the beginning of the game, quite a lot of money is going back into the company, mm -hmm. right? But then you reach a point where basically none of it is unless uh, you are sharing the tracks. And this is a really good bit about Iberian Gage that I liked. Yeah, so this is, this is the thing that I've not seen in other games, which is 
leasing. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in other games. I just haven't seen right. it anywhere else. Uh, which is leasing track, which is such a wild concept because uh, basically what it means is that uh, whenever you build track, you have to build it next to your company's existing track. Yes. And so you're kind of drawing a line across a map and going, oh, you know, I want to go to this city, then to that city, then to that city. Because uh, that is how you get your money, by, by connecting your track from one city to another. Yeah, but... What you can do is you can teleport your track somewhere else uh, by using another player's track. However, you have to pay them for every single hexagon uh-huh. that they've laid track on that you're teleporting through. And this is this is the really weird and kooky bit. Well, you're not pay- paying the player, you're paying the, the company. The company, right, yeah. That's and the important difference. That, that is the important difference. But, but also, unlike 18xx games, and I realise we're comparing... <laughs> This a lot. We can't help ourselves. We we really can't help ourselves. And if you're not familiar with the train genre and you're listening to this, this must feel like a nightmare. And I am so, so sorry. But we are deep in the weeds now. (laughs) Uh, It's so hard. Once you start playing these train games, you you get into that mindset Uh and you can't separate yourself from it. It's like everything is that. And and you compare it. (laughs) You start playing Ticket to Ride and you're like, right, what am I going to be doing in this? I guess what I'm trying to say is that you can't divorce yourself from these concepts because some of yeah. these concepts are incredibly interesting and engaging. And and how they differ from each other is incredibly interesting and engaging. And the way this differs is that notion that, first of all, you can lease track, but also the notion of cooperative ownership of the company, which is just the wildest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Because like you mentioned, Elaine, you can't sell the shares that you've bought. So uh-huh. once you bought into a company... What's really important here is that these companies are abstract amorphous blobs at the start of the game that mean nothing. <laughs> Once you buy into this company, you're just sitting there with the with other people who own it. And unlike, once again, 18xx uh-huh. games, you operate these companies together with other players. And each person gets to operate that company individually for each share that they have. So it's like, it's not that you just co-own a company, Mm. but you take turns Mm -hmm. at making all the crucial decisions Mm -hmm. for that company. So if I am, let's say, let's say a company has five shares in total. I have two of them and the other three players have one share Mm -hmm. each. Every other player is invested in that company a lot less than I am, Mm. which means they don't care if that company sinks, Mm. but I really do. And if the other players think that FK is the boogeyman and maybe let's try and sink his companies down, then what they can do is they can teleport across the world of Iberian Gage, spend all the company's money on leasing <laughs> everyone's track, fuel their own company's budgets with that tr- track that, uh-huh, uh-huh. that has been leased and also <laughs> spend their own company. Yeah, and spend all of my company's money. <laughs> And here's the really, really key bit. Like, if my company cannot make a connection to a city mm. on any given operating mm. round, that means that the share value tanks. Yeah. And that's devastating. If that right. happens to you in the game, you are probably out. 
yeah, it's very hard to build back up from that, particularly, like you say, if everyone is, for whatever reason, going against you. Mm. It's really hard to do that. What I really liked about this, though, which I found really uh, interesting, was it really matters the order in which you buy the shares in the company. So if mm. you're the first one to, to put a share into a company, you set the IPO, you set yeah. the value of each share. But not only that, you are the first to take your turn for that company. So your first to lay track for that company. Mm. Um, and then the next player to buy a share in that company is the next player to lay a piece of track and so on. So you could end up, if you bought two shares consecutively in that company, you'd lay two pieces of track. Or you maybe let, hold off a little bit and you don't buy another share in that company yet because you want to see what other people do with that company. Mm. And then you buy it at the end, like the, the last one to buy a share or whatever. So you can either lay track in the exact right place to do well for that company or the exact wrong place to make that company suffer. It's so funny because like, uh, you know, the company's turn starts and the first person goes, okay, I think... I think we should connect this company to that city because we're all going to make a lot of money. So they start by laying track. And then the next person goes, eh. nah, I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to build somewhere else entirely. And everyone's like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? I don't want you to do that. The dynamics, Because I have more shares in this other company yeah. and I don't care. The dynamics of this game are incredible. It's clearly, it's very clearly simulating something very, very specific. Mm -hmm. And it clearly has a thesis, which is an interesting thing to say for a board game. Mm -hmm. And and maybe it shouldn't be that interesting. Maybe sh more games should have a thesis, really. But I found it wildly fascinating. Uh, but at the same time, I had a varying degree of fun playing Iberian Gage. And if if you're interested in the dynamics it creates, if you're interested in the like potential of games telling stories not through like text on cards, but through like mechanisms, then Iberian Gage has that in spades. But I didn't exactly always have fun with Iberian Gage. No. Having said that, I only played it twice and once I had a tremendous amount of fun just watching everything happen. And the second time I didn't have so much fun watching everything happen because I felt like I had almost no input on the game. Oh, also one last thing about which relates to that is when you set the share price, if you're the first yeah. one to buy a share in that company, you can also decide where that track starts. So which city yes. that track starts in and you went, like, off the wall for, like, which where it was going to start. Look, so I played this game once, and I thought to myself, okay, I'm, I'm playing this a second time. I wanted to do something wild. So I set a stupid IPO and started a stupid uh -huh. place. Uh -huh. uh, turns out that what that means, I mean, I guess the game is teaching me a lesson, is that nobody's into that. So if nobody's into that, they're not going to play along with my game. And then I'm going to sit the entire game and watch the game happen around me. I think it was just a little bit too early. Yeah. I think that was the problem because we were all looking at the whole map, looking at all the companies that didn't really have any shares bought in them yet mm -hmm. and going, okay, where can I... Where can I make a good start for myself? Where can I plant myself that other people are going to want to invest into this? And also are good spots for uh, branching the track out to different places. And so we were all looking for that. And you just went, right, I'm going to slap it in the middle here and set it really high. Mm. You need to buy into my company. And everyone went, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Apart why would from we do one that? person who <laughs> really regretted it. Well... <laughs> 
the rest of the game because you were so convincing uh uh you know i want i wanted to do something like i said wild they're a good friend so they wanted to help you out but look how that turned out for them (laughs) you make a good point though like if you kind of start badly then you might end up having a bad game if you can't get people to invest in your company mm-hmm. then you might just end up having a bad game that's true i'm it feels weird to critique iberian gage on that because she's very much a designer that likes to experiment uh-huh. with game systems and likes to present something kooky and different and mm-hmm. sometimes weird and it's always to make a point and i think from that perspective you know uh, how do you even quantify how much fun is of importance? Um, <laughs> it's not about the fun. Board games are never about the fun. They're no, about how can they be? Yeah, into, they're very serious winning. things. Yeah, but no, I I have to say that at times Iberian Gage felt off the rails, <laughs> hey, and wild and fun and inventive, and at times it felt sluggish and a little bit unengaging. And and I guess that largely dependent on what I did with the game and how I, I manipulated so. it. And in that regard, I think it's very interesting. Yeah, I never felt like that because I always felt like I had something to do or someone to convince to do something for me, right, in, mm. in the companies that I had. And that for me just serves to make the game more interesting. Like it's based on your own decisions. Mm-hmm. So it's never the game tricking you. And that's what I really like about Iberian Gage is that, you don't feel the game is trying to be smarter than you or trying to trick you or trap you. It's always what you've done that's led to this conclusion, like that you've not been able to get track or you've not been able to invest in a company Mm. because you have spent too much money doing this or you haven't built track in the right place previously or the other players. Like it can be the other players, but it's never the game that's, that's doing it. It's, your playgroup sure but for me the thing about games that are overly simulationist is that there's that danger that what you get a sense of is that you input some parameters at the start of it (laughs) and then you press the play button and you watch what happens yeah right Mm -hmm. and and whilst that's i think like sort of exciting in a navel gazy kind of way (laughs) at times it can feel a little detached and distant and i'm not sure that's always what i'm hunting for from a game that tries to craft a narrative from mechanisms rather than Mm. just text but i don't think that's a criticism of iberian gauge specifically that's just something that happens in cube rails something that happens in 18xx games that's very true yeah there is that press the play button and watch it go and see Mm. what happens i think so i think irish gauge suffered from that a lot less it it was less overtly simulationist and more dynamic in that regard what I like about the Iron Rail series mm-hmm. is that they all feel similar in their genre, but they all feel quite different. I think I like this game best out of all the Iron Rail series. Oh, really? Yeah, I do. Oh, wow, that's I, big. I really liked Irish Gage as an introductory game that you can play with anyone mm-hmm. that's quick and light and you can pull out in a pub, which we did, and just have a go at it. But I really like this game as a kind of meteor, slightly ramping up to a closer to the 18xx games. I I like that you can feel more invested in it. Uh, mm. You know, there's, there's less of a 
fun with stocks and more like uh you know the strategy and planning and 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 even though like i said sometimes it can feel like you're just pressing the play button and seeing what happens other times you feel like you are making smart financial decisions i don't know i don't know if i've ever made a smart financial decision in my life but <laughs> but in this game i can feel like i have it gives you something in a game that maybe you're struggling to achieve in real life yes that's what we all want from our there games, we go isn't it, really? yeah that's a conclusion if there ever was one i beer engage managing your money and friendships. Oh, God, no. It destroys friendships, absolutely. <laughs> and this has been episode 19 of the No Pun Included podcast. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can always go to its home on nopunincluded.com slash podcast, where you'll find all the other episodes. You can leave a comment. Or if you've never heard of us before, uh, you can always go and visit our YouTube channel and watch some of our videos on youtube.com slash nopunincluded. Thank you so very much for listening. Why don't you say goodbye, Elaine? Goodbye, Elaine. Goodbye, Elaine.